Collaboration between different disciplines in your organization can be difficult, and finding clarity and alignment on the right problem to solve and the right solution design is even more so. We approach improvement from our own limited perspective. We can't take into account the whole story. How is that effective? Aha! Paul Rayner's Event Storming Facilitation Virtual Workshop is a multi-day online event. It promotes collaboration between different disciplines to solve business problems in the most effective way. This virtual workshop with Paul consists of four sessions on September 28th through October 1st, 2020, from 9 a.m. to noon in Central Time each day. To register and get 20% off your ticket, visit virtualgenius.com events. Use the code VGGTC. In this highly hands-on and interactive virtual workshop, you'll learn advanced event-storming facilitation skills from large business discovery to collaborative solution design at the team level. Also, Paul is great. That's my personal opinion. Once again, to get 20% off your ticket, visit virtualgenius.com events and use the code VGGTC. Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 201. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with Jacob Stobel. Thank you. It's my pleasure to welcome our guest this week, Nils Norman Hrukas, was born and raised in rural Tisbach, Norway. These days, he's living and working in Rainy Bergen, where he deletes and writes code for the digital design agency, NetLife Design. In his coding work, Nils makes use of his academic background, which includes user experience design, human-computer interaction, and business development. These days, he works comfortably from back-end to front-end, doing everything from server provisioning to optimizing SQL queries to architecting applications to general web development and animating with CSS. Beyond just making stuff work, he thinks a lot about software in relation to society. Our lives are mediated by software. We live immersed in it. We've become the fish swimming in software, barely noticing the water around us. Nils believes software developers need to consider the ethical implications of the software we write and make use of. When he's not pondering on software, Nils can be found playing capoeira, reading poetry, playing computer games, or dancing salsa. Coding is a lot of fun, but there's a lot of life worth living and doing. I would agree. Welcome to our show. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here. We will start the way we always do, which is asking you, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? So I, I had to give this a uh, lot of thoughts. So uh, I, I eventually ended up uh, landing on uh, my superpower is uh, storytelling. And uh, how I acquired it is, um, I think it's like somebody makes a comment and then you look back on your life and then you're thinking like, wait a minute, that's totally something that could be a superpower for me. So, uh, and the way I kind of discovered this was when I, I was talking about how I love to tell stories and so on. And my, my mom commented, well, you've always been uh, very, uh, very fond of storytelling. And so she, she talked about this scene from, uh, or something that happened in third grade in school, uh, where she talked to the teacher of the class and she had just mentioned like, yeah, Nils loves telling stories. So apparently I had 
stood up on a chair and just told the story to the class by myself. So I'm just thinking about that. Okay, so maybe uh, that's something that was dormant there, and now I'm trying to tap more into it. You're working on developing that skill a little more consciously? Is that what you're saying? Yes. So I, I find that if you like doing an activity, I think you can get very good at it if you try to get really good at it and maybe i think it was last year i spent uh, some of the like we have this budget at my workplace we can spend it on training and then i i even though i was quite comfortable about speaking publicly i I actually tried to invest uh, into a course trying to like okay uh, so i I feel like i can do this pretty decently but how can i get even better at this Uh, so the trick was uh, practice apparently that's what the (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the workshopper uh, who I paid money, uh, she she told me, you know what, uh, practicing and actually recording yourself and watching the recording, even though it can feel a bit excruciating to watch yourself representing. <laughs> yeah, I've been there with 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 that whole watching yourself on video thing. It's hard, but also so instructive. Yes, definitely. And also, once you start thinking about uh, how to present, then you can start thinking. Maybe you see somebody else presenting and then uh, you notice, oh, wow, that was a great opening or that was a great uh, ending or I really liked the way how this person was made the statement and then just let it chill in the room almost. And then everybody is just, wow, this is an important statement. And you said your work sponsored this? Yes, actually. So in NetLife, we have this training budget. We have uh, so and so much money, which we can spend on whatever type of training. So you just have to clear it with your team leader. Uh, so it can be it can be books, it can be um, going to a conference or uh, attending a, a workshop. It's very easy to uh, forget <laughs> forget to make use of it. So uh, uh, almost because in the day to day you get very busy, uh, of course, with the actual work. I was asking because I would guess that that's pretty rare where uh, there would be such a um, unrestricted view of how training can be. But you know what I mean? Like there would be like a bit, there's this, it seems like there's this very wide idea, wide perspective on what could be considered acceptable training. And I would certainly agree, but I'm wondering like how can other people make the case to their employers that, you know, something as seemingly unrelated as storytelling would be a worthwhile training in their job in software. Actually, I would say that uh, storytelling or public speaking, I think that's an extremely nice tool to have in your pocket when you're a designer or a developer or a content strategist. Because when I, as an IT consultant, I really need to convince the the client that I really believe in these types of uh, like we should do this and not this and also when I'm working with uh, uh, other uh, programmers uh, even my colleagues they need convincing so I need to always try to tell a very compelling story about how I think the software should be structured so it's it's not that hard to make the case for uh, public speaking at least I think in NetLife, we emphasize a lot about the importance of being able to share uh, knowledge. 
So, and then being trained uh, in public speaking, that's excellent uh, to be able to share knowledge and also to be able to uh, stand on um, maybe in front of a boardroom at a customer. Maybe we used up all the money because we thought uh, this was very important to spend a lot of time on getting this feature just right. And now we have to explain ourselves. And then being able to hold a good presentation uh, is excellent. So uh, usually we don't end up in those type of situations, but it could happen. Yeah, I was thinking if you if you couched, even if, even if the training was specifically about like crafting stories or storytelling, I mean, you could very easily say that this is, you know, this is building a, a toolbox for public speaking, you know, and, and communication that would like, I as a manager would say like, oh, yeah, great, go for it. Like, that's, <laughs> that sounds awesome. So like, if, if folks are interested in that kind of thing, there's a way to make it seem relevant to the relevant bosses. <laughs> Yeah, and, and also beyond public speaking, I could say that uh, a developer taking a, a brief course in design or maybe a designer taking a brief course in uh, coding or a content strategist learning a little bit of code, it makes you ask so much better questions. Um, so it's it's like you're actually saving money, you could say, uh, by taking those types of courses. <laughs> yeah, you really... you. I mean, I guess technically it's broadening the skill set, but it sort of deepens your core skill set by giving you like that extra context of what the other people are doing and what they need out of you and vice versa. Yes, uh, definitely. So in your bio, I noticed that you, I I love that you talked about the fact that you delete code and write code uh, and that you put the delete first because I think that's like for personally it's one of my pleasures is is ripping out features uh especially old ones that that don't work very well so t- can you tell me a little bit about why you chose to do that oh uh, i'm so happy that you noticed that because as an it consultant we have to introduce ourselves to new clients all the time and this is something i like to just say because it kind of wakes people up in the room like yeah my name is nils and uh, i delete code um, and then people are like, whoa, what's going on? Uh, and then I, I really like to clear out old craft. So then suddenly the code base is just so much easier to reason about, especially in old code bases where you have a lot of code laying around. You can almost feel a bit scared to touch anything. It's like you're deep in some coal mine or something and you're looking at these type of structures and you're wondering like are these load bearing or what? Uh, can we remove these or and make something new? And sometimes like I remember this one occasion where I was there was this um, some React code and it was doing this map produce filter and really juggling a lot of arrays and 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 i'm like what what is really going on here well actually it was just trying to take a a list of um items and for some of the items grouping them it was doing something very trivial and i i cleaned it up and then i just actually took the commit before the cleanup and just screenshotted it and shared it with my colleagues and asked them Hey, uh, hey, people! Uh, what do you think is happening here? And everybody was like, "Yeah, I, I don't have no idea." And then I posted my refactoring, and it was like, "Okay, it was actually doing extremely little. <laughs> we can only carry so much complexity in our head. So when we are writing a feature, it's very easy to forget to do the cleanup right after." 
completing the feature. So it's the 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 common saying to make it work, and then you you make it fast, and then you make it right. I'm not sure, quite sure who said it first, but uh, yeah, that's something I, I really think about a lot uh, when I'm trying to code. I've definitely felt sometimes when I'm looking at code that I I get a sense that I maybe I could I could refactor it or remove something, but then I look at the get blame and see who wrote it, and I'm like, oh, I really respect that person a lot, and then I find myself second guessing if I really should be changing that because in my mind I'm thinking about oh well that's will this cause a conflict with that person or will they think that I'm that I think that they they're not good at their job and I, I find that there's all of these there's all of this drama that's sort of going on under the surface that um, I, I can understand why I think code goes uncleaned a lot because I think there's a lot of tension around around that the tension part is um, that's something to unpack because when I talk about the code with my colleagues, I really try to use the word we a lot. Like, it's our code, we should do this. And it's like, uh, this code base is really tough. We should try to figure out a way to uh, make it better so that it doesn't go down to the level where, like, you did this and I'm doing this and uh, you should do that. Who wrote this? So then suddenly we're like ping-ponging blame around instead of saying, like, you know, if, if we all pitch in, we can make this so much uh, smoother to work in. <laughs> yeah, a couple of years ago, I had an experience around that where I had written a feature uh, in like it was it was part of our testing thing. So it was allow us to sort of mock out endpoints. And I had sort of done it all on my own and sort of just said, OK, this is how we're doing these things now. And then like three months later, another developer came along and was like, and like, tore out a lot of it because it didn't actually work the way he needed it to work. And at one point he was like, Hey, can you want to talk about this? And I was still in that, like, Oh my God, I'm really angry. Like this has only been live for three months and it's already being thrown away, <sighs> you know? And so I didn't say anything to him because I knew I was probably not going to be nice about it. Um, and then once I'd calmed down, I realized that was a bad feature in the first place because I hadn't gotten input from anybody else when I built it. And if I had, I would have known that there were these other requirements that this person needed and, and built something completely different. Um, and so, of course, it's being torn out because it doesn't actually – it only fits one nar narrow use case. And so, like, again, that it's, it's sort of like the whole life cycle of, like, that feeling very proprietary about the code you write and then also worrying about how other people are going to react. But then if you sort of go up a level to the team and say, well, does the team need this code? Is, is it serving the app? Is it serving, you know, the customers? Then, then you can be like, um, well, no, actually it's not. So let's fix it. Yeah, it's, it's really something to grow into, I feel, as you um, become more and more experienced as a programmer. And I'm thinking about the writers, I mean, authors, when they send their drafts to editors, those drafts, they get teared apart and uh, no no author just writes a draft and then that's a book. So um, so then to see like a, a piece of a chapter or a lot large chunk of code being ripped out, okay. So it, sh it should be okay. <laughs> uh, and in I, fact, like the, those those writers that get to the point where the, the editors are too afraid to really tear them apart, like they end up writing worse <laughs> books. Yeah. Did you find out about your code being ripped out before the pull request was merged? So I was reviewing the pull request. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I feel like that that happened, I think, speaks really well to your team. 
because somehow there was a mechanism for like the person who might have strong feelings about it got to at least know about it <laughs> before you know what i mean yeah if it had just sort of showed up like a month later like oh this yeah we don't do this anymore and I'd be like what what the heck happened that would that would have been even worse because the surprise factor just makes it like it multiplies whatever reaction you're going to have there yeah I think I've been thinking a lot recently about how like the systems that teams have for uh, getting feedback, because there's some circumstances where a specific person really ought to review this pull request. But then how how is the author going to necessarily know who those people should be? And like that, that would be a really complex question. But it sounds like it, it was it went well <laughs> in that scenario, at least. Yeah, that's one of those sort of implicit knowledge things on a team. And if it's been around long enough, everyone just sort of knows these things. But if, if you've got a newish team or like 80% like new, then it's a lot harder because that stuff isn't ever communicated. Like it's not even written down anywhere. It's just you just know that Bob wrote that whole section. And so like maybe get his input when you're changing it. <laughs> like, yeah, and um, and... On, on this note, I'm thinking that in NetLife, we've had this talk about how we, we don't want individuals to be to know everything about one code base, to be like the, the code base owner, because it's very easy for managers to think, yeah, this one person is really fast and nimble in that code base, so we just put that person on there uh, forever. And then, uh, and then that person is stuck in that project, and maybe the code base becomes weirder and weirder uh, because uh, everybody has their own type of style, how they like to code. So that's something uh, we try to have a very open dialogue with our team leaders who are trying to like. It's uh, sometimes it can be a bit Tetris trying to uh, to put designers and developers on projects and moving them and so on. But on top of that, we need to think about switching the people working on code bases, and then that forces you to like, I need to leave my implicit knowledge inside the code base somewhere so that I can be somewhere else um, learning something else. There's so many downsides to being tied to a single project like that, like. For like you were saying, you, you sort of stagnated as a developer, like you're the only one who can fix it. I mean, sure, you get things done fast, but that's because it's all your code. But it's also like a risk, right? If you like leave to another company, if you win the lottery, like you're like then everyone is sort of scrambling, be like, what the heck is even going on in here? So yeah, we, we try and explicitly swap people around and cross train and, and, and do that as well because just I mean, even a week-long vacation can cause havoc if, like, only one person really knows how the thing works. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by An Event Apart. For over 15 years, An Event Apart conferences have been the best way to level up your skills, be inspired by world-class experts, and learn what's next in web design. An Event Apart is proud to introduce Online Together Fall Summit, a three-day web design conference coming to a device near you October 26th through 28th. The Fall Summit features 18 in-depth sessions, each followed by a live moderated Q&A session with the speaker, plus unique one-on-one -on -one conversations with some special guests. You'll learn about advanced CSS from Marianne Suzanne and Una Kravitz, design systems and patterns from Mina Markham and Jason Grigsby, design engineering from Adekunle Oduye, inclusive design from Sarah Soudin and David Dylan Thomas, and much more. Attending an event apart boosts your brain, inspires your creativity, and increases your value to your teammates, employers, clients, and most of all, yourself. And you can boost it even further. 
purchase a three-day pass and receive six months of on-demand access to their first three Online Together events. That's a full six days of jam-packed content for the price of three. Greater Than Code listeners can get $100 off any multi-day pass with promo code AEAGTC. Once again, that promo code is AEAGTC. So grab your spot and join an event apart Online Together Fall Summit, October 26th through 28th. See the full three-day schedule and register today at aneventapart.com. In um, February, I think, I um, asked a question to my team, which was, uh, is it ethical to use technologies from companies uh, that pay little or no taxes? And implicit in the background, it's kind of like looming behind us. Uh, We are using React, which supports Facebook, We are uh, using other technologies that support Amazon and also Google. So we internally at NetLife, we we wound up at this kind of philosophical debate or discussion about whether or not it's right to use those type of technologies when if the companies contribute uh, a net negative to society. And then some of my colleagues were like, um, well, I mean, it's they are large. Uh, what can you do? Let's just use React and chug out features. And then actually um, a colleague of mine, he was saying like, well, ethically or philosophically, well, we could look at maybe utilitarianism here, perhaps uh, to try to evaluate it. And then but eventually we the discussion just fizzled off and it didn't quite go anywhere. But it lingered in my mind somehow, this question. And I started seeing this uh, conference uh, call for proposals. And then I started making some pitches based on this idea. And then I uh, pitched to NDC Oslo with a talk called Real Rebels Pay Their Taxes, where I tried to unpack this question. And I, I tried to pull in references to ethics to uh, value economical value theory and i also try to pull in some uh, references just to talking about tax and all of this i do to build an argument well i would argue that it's not ethical to use these technologies from these from these companies who do these rampant type of uh, tax optimizations and then this this whole argument like okay can we uh, somehow accept that these companies, these like big five, uh, the the Google, the Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, can we accept that these contribute? They are so highly valued, and they pay so little tax. They outcompete smaller tax-paying businesses on a global scale, and they create these um, low-income jobs, maybe for especially Amazon, and then they extract value uh, from that. That's happening in the real world. While we are Git cloning projects and we're achieving planet scale uh, serverless functions and we're really like buying into all of this um, this hype. I'm saying that we programmers, we are not immune to uh, fashion. So we, we are very enamored by everything that's new and cool. And we maybe we've lost this. We, we, are, we are not appreciating code that has been functioning for 20 years uh, as much as we should be appreciating it 
I find that the tax angle uh, an interesting one that I haven't seen before in, in discussions of software ethics. Like there's the, the really obvious things like no tech for ice and, and the DHS and Palantir and, and like the, the sort of obvious evils of like, like not supporting those sort of organizations. But then this is sort of a, another level up of like, organizations that maybe aren't actively evil but you if you consider like the impact to society of not paying the taxes that they probably should be then like that's still a, a negative that there's still that ethical angle to it i i reference the economist uh, mariana masukato a lot in my talk and um i actually in 2018 i somehow stumbled into a keynote speech of her and I watched uh, her speaking live about values and uh, economical inequality in society. And I'm sitting there as a programmer and I'm just like, oh my God, all this value theory, uh, hundreds of years of economical theory. And she's like arguing really well how we need to rekindle the idea that value is actually something to be debated. So then when when uh, Amazon is a very highly valued company, we we should just not accept that at face value. Why why is Jeff Bezos highly valued? Why is he highly valued and not some teacher or not some nurse instead? Where where does this come from actually? So uh, and uh, so just I was sitting there 2018, just like oh my god, what's going on here? And then I kind of maybe forgot about this. I'm not sure, but I, it was always in the back of my mind. And then in 2019, I I was able to um, to catch the last uh, JSConf EU um, in Berlin, and um, I saw one of the last talks there was uh, a talk by. Uh, CJ Silverio, uh, who had been uh, previously the CTO of uh, MPM, and uh, she just she had a talk called um, "The Economies uh, Economics of Open Source." It's a long talk where she talks about this kind of journey of uh, the MPM ecosystem, and she talks about how a lot of the maybe the largest, uh, I mean, the, not not the largest, but the the most prom- prominent contributors to uh, the MPM ecosystem. They are not rich today. They are not living on some yacht somewhere. But NPM, the, the CEO of NPM Inc. or the owners of NPM, they are, they are rich. But not why and why aren't these programmers who contributed so much to the ecosystem uh, rich? So then I just watched that, and and she during that uh, talk, they NPM um, had been struggling a lot. Um, they had a lot of um, kind of trouble. A lot of people were quitting NPM, um, and uh, and also they haven't they hadn't been acquired by uh, Microsoft. So at that point, things were really hanging in the air, and there was a lot of unsaid, uh, a lot of unspoken things. It felt so. She had the talk, and she announced the decentralized package management uh, system called uh, Anthropic. There was just standing ovations from the audience because everybody was really like feeling like, oh my God, we were just sitting around here and suddenly we have this venture capitalist funding just coming in, sailing in and owning the ecosystem. And how did that happen? What can we do? And then she introduced this solution of creating a decentralized package management system. So that happened there. And of course, 
later in history, uh, Microsoft uh, acquired uh, MPM and kind of solved kind of the ticking time bomb of what happens to MPM when it runs out of venture capitalist venture capital funding. So uh, so that happened in 2019, and then just this this whole narrative of value and money, and then uh, just kind of uh, were kind of hanging around in my mind, and then. Come 2020, then what's up with uh, these large companies benefiting so much from open source and not uh, contributing back? Yeah, I think there's an interesting parallel there that we've seen, like in in the broader economy with with COVID nineteen. At least in the U.S., there's been you know this designation of certain workers as essential workers that that should be out there working and need to be protected and except that all of those workers are paid incredibly poorly, right? All the essential workers are stock people and, and like counters and baristas and, and like just keeping the food chain and the gas, you know, flowing and all those things. And, and yet they're, they're the ones making the crap pay. And only some of them were getting like minor bumps for, for that. And it, it's the same issue there where like the, the stuff we can't live without is so poorly valued. Definitely. And also in Norway, we somebody coined uh, a phrase called um, uh, which is the, the, the home office nobility, the people who are privileged to be able to have a job where they can stay at home and order what they need. The argument I have in my talk is quite complex because uh, okay, well, what now? What can we do about the centralization uh, of power into large tech corporations? Well, uh, one thing we can do is to start wanting an alternative. Like if we can recognize that this is an issue, then we can start thinking about some alternatives. In my uh, talk towards the end, I, I start talking about maybe we need better licensing somehow. And then and after my talk, I, uh, I learned about uh, the ethical source working group and I learned about ethical licensing and so on. So I'm saying that it's not ethical to use the technology from these large tech corporations. For example, if I go to my manager and I, managers and I'm saying, you know what, Amazon Web Services or Google Web Services or Azure... That's a super neat service. Let's just put all our uh, client services on those type of systems. Uh, we can spend a lot of uh, time and effort to, to learn the technology, learn the platform, and put our code there. I'm helping putting the, the... If the client is paying for this type of hosting, I'm actually taking the money from the client and investing it in companies that pay very little tax. So then... In an ideal situation, if these companies were paying their fair share of uh, taxes, if, if they were not the multinational company able to do tax optimization, if it was just a national company, then much more of those taxes would just go back into the economy. So then you wouldn't have a lot of money piling up uh, somewhere. There's a reason that we have a lot of developer evangelists because developers, we, we make a lot of purchasing options. We have a, a lot of say about where to host the code, what type of technologies to use and, and 
how to move where. So if I'm arguing to my manager, like, you know what, this new platform, we should put all our code there. It's quite hard for a manager or somebody else to say, uh, I don't know, I don't believe in that technology. So then so we, so we have a lot of purchasing power, uh, not only within our company, but also with any companies that we are helping. And thinking about how money flows around into society, it's harder and harder to look at large open source projects and not think about how money and power is accumulating with companies owning those technologies. Another example is that we have large open source projects such as Gatsby.js, Next.js, and also Nuxt.js. All of those technologies are funded by venture capital. So to receive venture capital funding, it's kind of like, I was going to say, like dancing with the devil or uh, kind of like accepting to have a fire lit uh, underneath you. Like, okay, we have invested so and so many millions into your open source project. You need to start acquiring a lot of people, start requiring talent and uh, uh, just burn up money as much as you can uh, just to, to grow as large as possible. So we're seeing that uh, Gatsby.js has been doing this. And I'm sorry if I feel like I'm hounding uh, Gatsby here, but it's just a good example. And then Gatsby is trying to grow and grow and grow. And there's this incentive system or getting venture funding, venture capital, VC funding creates weird incentives in an open source project. It's not so much about, well, you need to optimize a lot of things, but also you start optimizing your release schedule. So the, suddenly you're like, you always need to like release new features every now and so often so that you can kind of uh, stay in the mind share of uh, users and programmers out there. It's like, okay, oh my God, they launched yet another feature and another feature. And now they're doing this and taking over the world. Because we programmers, we, we have come kind of, we've, we've become blind to all the code around us that just work. Like we, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, very basic open source projects around us that just are mission critical but they don't have a large marketing department and they are not pushing out a lot of features because it's just rock solid stable. And then on the other side, you have uh, a lot of uh, open source projects that are they're moving so fast and they're, they're kind of like changing paradigms. So then suddenly you're like, especially with frameworks, if, if I'm building with a framework and then the framework relaunch, uh, do major version updates, then I'm actually I'm, I'm chasing the framework and I'm forced to unlearn old syntax and I have to learn new syntax. So the case in point here would be that I have an old code base um, based on uh, Next.js uh, 7. And then with Next.js 8 and 9, now they're moving more and more to the, the serverless paradigm and they are gearing this framework to work really well with uh, their Vercel uh, platform. But that's not where my client is. My client is running self-hosted our, uh, infrastructure. So even though we built all this code on top of Next.js, I'm thinking like, well, I shouldn't upgrade. I shouldn't buy into the direction that this framework is headed. And it's a kind of a tough call to make because uh, we have this notion that uh, 
staying up to date and current is the safest bet. Like we should always like uh, update, uh, get security updates, and so on and so forth. So um, it's it's kind of hard when the the framework is trying to make money <laughs> underneath you. For instance, I would say that with uh, Gatsby.js, uh, again, I'm sorry that I'm critiquing it so hard. It's just that it had, a lot of people have been uh, concerned that it's uh, they have issues with the, the build times. And uh, now they launched a cloud offering where they have very uh, good build times. But then this creates a kind of weird incentive that uh, we should never make the framework faster because then you are, the programmers are no longer incentivized to use our platform. Implicit in this argument is that VC-funded technology will always try to disempower you in some way. So it's a strong argument, of course, but I would say that we're seeing this with uh, software as a service infrastructures where you get some code that's open source, but then you interface with the backend that's closed source. So then they have a platform and you can't get away from that platform, even though what you're holding in your code base is open source, uh, you're forced to talk to some closed source backend. And then suddenly, like, yeah, you lose power. But it's hard to see this because you're bombarded with very, very strong marketing. You get uh, developer um, uh, evangelists um, really professing uh, how great these technologies are. And uh, you see them, uh, maybe some some links surfacing at the top of um, uh, Hacker News. And then you're thinking like, okay, I'm seeing this technology a lot so it must be great well it's uh, it's debatable because in the background for instance i've been working with the the, the norwegian meteorological institute for a bit a fun fact they were here in bergen and they were actually the the birthplace of uh, modern weather forecasting so uh, a lot of uh, uh, budding weather forecasters they try to to have um a stay working at uh, the in Bergen to be close to where it started. It all started. So, uh, but yeah, I was working at the Norwegian Meteorological Institute, and I was working on a 20-year-old service. And uh, and some of these people on my team, they were the people who originally built the service. And and this service is a extreme wave weather forecasting service uh, written in Perl, I think. And it's extremely mission critical because this service combines wave and uh, wind data and then generates a report. And based on that report, the, the people on the, the oil rigs out in the North Sea, they can make a decision on whether or not they should move a thousand people onto the shore because there's a storm brewing. So and it has everything to do with uh, the angle of the waves, how the waves are hitting the oil rig, and uh, how is this combining with the wind coming in, and um, and so on. So then, so this is like twenty-year-old code written in Perl, and now they were finally replacing it. And it's like you will hardly find some developer relations people talking about this type of stuff, because they are they are talking about all the new stuff the cool stuff that's coming in, but then you have all this other stuff which we are not talking about, just this kind of like boring, just works type of technology. So that's that's kind of like lacking in the in the conversation about newness. <laughs> okay, so we have a lot of these fancy technologies put forth by 
lot of companies that are VC funded or otherwise not contributing their fair share to society, then so okay. So what what other types of technologies can we uh, or, or what, where do we go from here? Uh, one way I would say like maybe we could uh, look at the brush some dust off the web components, uh, for instance. Just a web components, it's not as smooth to work with as uh, React components. It's not as polished, but web components could be not a framework, but just something you use in your code. Suddenly you're not working with some framework that's struggling to figure out how to make money. Instead, you're just working with code that's built into your browser. And then if you can move away from the framework thinking and start thinking only in libraries, then it's easier to not be trapped by some framework. I believe a lot of framework authors, they, they're very idealistic, uh, releasing stuff, putting an MIT license on it, throwing it out in the world and, and trying to make it work. But at some point, it's going to get tough, especially if your project becomes successful. There are so many stories about open source authors who become burnt out because of their success. Because it's like you're trying to tell people that, uh, hey, I'm doing this on my free time. Uh, I, I can't really respond to this issue. Or maybe somebody shows up at your doorstep with a lot of code, but it's code that's going to take your code base in the wrong direction, you feel. And then that's super tough because somebody else has done a lot of work on their spare time. And then you are sitting there on your spare time trying to say, I'm sorry, but I can't really take responsibility for this type of code. It's not going in the direction I'm trying to go. Uh, and then at some point you're like, oh my God, what am I spending all my free time working on? And in the meantime, all these large corporations are making so much money from this type of open source. So I'm seeing these kind of conversations here and there where people are like, burning out or trying to like, oh my God, what what should I do? And then a lot of open source projects then resort to getting venture capitalist funding. That's not a success, I would say. It's not a success either because then suddenly, you know, you need to start hiring people and you need to scale up and then you're definitely not going to remain the type of project you were before you got that funding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always suspicious the moment venture capital gets involved, whether it's in a SaaS product that maybe was bootstrapped for a while and then, then they get around to funding or like you said, in, the, in an open source project that suddenly gets backing. Like there's always a, oh God, how, like what, like the incentives all get switched around and they're, you're no longer part of the equation as a customer, as a user. And so like it can work out all right, but it doesn't, <laughs> like it often doesn't. Yeah, and um, and also as a consultant, my my job is to advise clients on what type of actions they should take, what type of strategies they should do with their code base, and when I'm seeing a framework getting funding and starting to skyrocketing into some direction, then I'm I'm kind of I'm become hesitant to advise clients that they should invest in those types of technologies, because then. It's kind of like a, yeah, you bet on this technology and it's kind of boom or bust. Either it becomes hugely famous or the it gets maybe picked apart and sold to somebody else, maybe. 
I feel like uh, almost like a carpenter when I'm talking to a client. Uh, yeah, you should invest in these materials because these materials are going to be great. So then in a consultant uh, life, then I would talk to a client saying, yeah, you should invest in these frameworks because these are tried and true or I really believe in the community around these technologies. Yeah, it seems like that there there are a lot of pitfalls in in all of the open source funding models, right? There's the like do it yourself model which leads to burnout. There's the venture capital model which obviously we talked about. There's the company sponsorship model which can work, but I and I'm not super familiar with this situation, but I know there's a whole thing going on with Kubernetes and like the fact that Google is so in control of that project and so like there's all those issues there. And then, like, I'm not sure what, like, there's donations, which are, like, spotty as best as far as I know. Like, sometimes you get money, sometimes you don't. And it probably doesn't pay for your actual labor. Um. Yeah, I, I just, on that note, I just want to say that um, there's another aspect here, which I haven't talked about yet, which is how large businesses can, when they, when they have developers working full-time on their open source, they are uh, kind of outcompeting any projects out there. Because like, if I'm trying to create a competitor to, uh, a com- competitor to uh, Kubernetes on my free time, like I would lose because I can work a couple of hours uh, every other night but, or evening. But then you have, these, you have full, a full team of developers just chugging along uh, in the, like 40 hours a week, just trying to make uh, Kubernetes even better. And I also make a point about this in my talk, saying that, and why are we really trying to make Kubernetes a thing? Is it to just save us from learning uh, Linux uh, system administration? And I'm talking a lot about this type of alternative cost because all the time we are investing in making Kubernetes a thing is time that we're not putting into making Linux system administration better. I feel this is truly disempowering to have generations of developers growing up thinking like, um, yeah, Kubernetes is the cool thing. Yeah, definitely. I'm reading, I'm seeing it everywhere. Uh, So it must be great even though maybe in the background you have some virtual machines running Debian with uh, automated security updates, uh, some cron jobs notifying people by email. Uh, just, I mean, uh, shout out to email. Uh, <laughs> stuff that just works in the background, not cool, just done. So I'm, yeah, I'm being tough on Kubernetes here. I feel that we are inventing framework syntax for each other to save each other from learning what we should be learning, which is just fundamentals about Linux system administration or server system administration, basically. And there's a critical mass that Google can achieve by bootstrapping an open source project, because when Kubernetes, when a project like Kubernetes becomes popular enough, suddenly it's maybe it's easier to find people who have experience in Kubernetes Compared to, you know, vanilla Linux sysadmin or, you know, a React developer as opposed to, you know, someone who knows everything about jQuery. And there's a lot of jQuery code out there still. And additionally, when you get big enough, you can extract free labor from others 
because they need React to work, and there's some problem that doesn't fit their particular use case. So they can either fork it, but no one wants to do that, or they can fix it for free. You're on the, right on the money there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's. Um, I noticed this. I was watching. Uh, I was reading about this Material Design React library. Where this is just some vol- people outside of Google who are they've created a lot of uh, React components based on uh, Google's Material Design, and I'm I'm seeing like how they are they are working. They are getting some sponsorship on their documentation pages and uh, they're they're getting funding but i'm reading their uh, the the change log or the blog and i'm seeing like yeah google suddenly changed uh, their material design something so now we are just throwing ourselves around and uh, rewriting a lot of components to fit with uh, google's changed material design something and it's it's. Uh, I'm just seeing that, and I'm thinking, oh man, that's so much work happening because Google decided to change something suddenly. And it's very beneficial for Google, of course, that uh, there are projects outside Google really trying to align themselves with what Google are trying to do is trying to do. When we think about all this labor that all this free labor we are putting into creating code that works well with Kubernetes or code that works well with React. When a new framework shows up, it's useless, kind of. Then we need to transplant all the the good ideas we've learned from this ecosystem into the new ecosystem. And it's just so much work, again, free labor that people are putting up with, basically. So, but what if we, instead of building with Kubernetes, we build with even more stable abstractions, such as building uh, with uh, the Debian in mind? Just, okay, what's, what's up inside Debian? What does Debian show up with? Can we somehow extend the system D to do even better things for us? And I know that a lot of Linux uh, GNU Linux folks. Some are very up in arms about uh, System D and how System D has spread inside the the Linux ecosystem. Just to say two words on what System D actually is. Well, it's a, uh, it's I guess it's the hypervisor, the program that is responsible for starting and stopping services and making sure that all the services are aligned uh, and so on. And then instead instead of using putting system D to greater effect or expanding on that, we are inventing Kubernetes, somehow trying to hide the Linux servers from uh, from us underneath there somewhere. But uh, as the programmer saying goes, uh, abstractions leak. So you thought you could just learn Kubernetes and get away with it. But guess what? Now you need to learn Kubernetes and learn Debian, uh, learn Linux system administration. So what what have you actually learned? Just to have an exa- another example here is um, some years back, I used uh, Hibernate with Java. So Hibernate is a Java library that abstracts away the raw SQL queries from you. So instead of writing SQL to save data, you are calling these Java objects and putting objects into objects and uh, figuring out how to do inheritance and so on, just to at some point wind up with uh, tabular data in a database. 
and then uh, I was just for some reason I I don't know maybe I heard it on a podcast but somebody was just actually I saw a talk by somebody who um, uh, was an expert in Postgres the Postgres database and he was just showing hey what's new with uh, the SQL syntax in Postgres so he was just saying that well a lot of people when they try to learn SQL they try to learn SQL standard from 1992. Uh, we have progressed so much more from there. So then he just showed some of the the modern SQL syntax, and and I'm just wow, oh my god, why am I trying to debug this ORM that is writing SQL for me and not stepping down a bit and learning SQL? So now that so I spent the time learning SQL and this type of knowledge is it's like it's timeless. It's almost as timeless as possible uh, in the in the programmer ecosystem. Like if you learn HTML and CSS, or if you learn SQL, that's th- that's a type of knowledge that's going to be extremely valuable for a long type of time. And it's like uh, uh, we don't like to repeat ourselves, and we don't like to kind of just I don't know spend. Uh, too much effort on something that doesn't give you value back. So just learning the basics, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, learning basic SQL, learning Linux system administration. It's like you you won't find developer relations people talking highly about this kind of stuff. But I, I feel that this is the true like you wanna you wanna you wanna get rich, <laughs> learn this stuff because you, you are going to be useful wherever you are. So there's one idea in here that I sort of want to unpack a little bit because it's sort of like I'm still trying to get my head around it a little bit. And and it's around the idea of using a product, using a, a tool, framework, project, whatever, for like from a company or from some sort of organization that has moneyed interest for free as a form of support. Like it's obvious when you're giving money to say GitHub that you're you're giving money to GitHub and whatever GitHub wants to do with the money, that they have more power now because they have more money. But it's a different kind of transaction when you're just using a project. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how that impacts like the company and, and how you're using it and, and how you see that connecting to the ethical like implications of, of what sort of support for a company that is. Yes, definitely. A very good question. So then we, we need to center uh, our thinking around alternative costs. If I spend a lot of time learning Kubernetes, that is time I'm not learning something else. So even though I, I got Kubernetes for free, I downloaded it for free on my computer, I can create a lot of cool services for free with that type of software. But And also I can convince my colleagues and my clients to use Kubernetes but then I'm using a lot of time on that, which I could be, which could be spent doing something else. Previously, I talked about these type of timeless knowledge. Yeah, the HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and then the system administration. What if we tap into that instead of tapping into technology from these type of corporations? Because it's it, this has a weird type of gravitational pull because let's say one year or two years into the future where, yeah, all the old school system administrators, uh, we we fired them. Uh, we only have uh, 20-somethings uh, who only know about uh, Kubernetes. 
So now they're chugging out code and uh, yeah, and we can't really self-host anything, but no problem because we just put everything on Google Cloud because uh, Google Cloud is the largest vendor. Or we can put it on Azure or Amazon. Even though you got all of this for free, you got all the documentation for free. It's like it is highway of power centralization. And and we don't need to do that. We can take a different route. So what if uh, we uh, spend effort into making self-hosting super sweet instead? Or maybe we spend more time not creating frameworks, but more uh, documenting patterns and uh, writing small libraries that can be useful wherever they are. It's super convenient when you're inside a framework that's... uh, kind of like boxing you in and throwing you down some happy path. Yes, it's easy, but is is it the right thing (laughs) considering uh, how much centralization you're getting? And uh, you want freedom, essentially. The freedom to maybe change libraries if you want to. Maybe you also want the freedom to not see your framework, uh, your code go super complex. So if if you're only right, if you're writing your code uh, around libraries, then it's easier to to change your code and choose your way, basically. And also another argument is that it's stif- I would say it stifles innovation because we're spending so much time trying to make this type of technology work instead of trying to create smaller, uh, more atomic libraries and making them work well. And if if we if we would create more libraries then they would be easier to maintain also it would be easier to reason about and uh, carry on into the future well unfortunately we're coming to the end end of our time here so it's probably like this is definitely a good opening conversation there's definitely a lot more places we could go with this but uh, i think it's probably time to move into reflections here which is just you know from this conversation what sort of things are we taking away what thoughts are we continuing to chew on I'm happy to get started with that. I think for me, the the idea of treating like tax avoidance as as a social negative, which like when you think about it, of course, it, that's obviously a social negative. Taxes are are a social good, but like it it tends not to be one of those things that's obviously categorized as a social negative in the sort of in the context of evil things that corporations do. <laughs> but it's on that list, and 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 thinking of that as part of a way of evaluating a company and 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 its ethical standing is is. I think important and it's definitely something I'm going to keep in mind, like thinking about this going into the future and also like thinking about how companies that are involved in open source, like what are their motivations there? Like what are they getting out of it? Why are they putting money into it? Because obviously if they're putting money into it, they feel like they're getting more value out of it than they're putting into it. So there's some, there's some motivation there and, and questioning that, or at least trying to understand what that is. I think puts me in a better position to think about how to use their tools. I guess I would consider myself a mid-level software developer. I've been doing this for six years now. And I think I've gotten to the point where I've been thinking more about how I've been finding myself a little bit bored with, you know, learning the next hot thing. And I've been sort of struggling with that. And I think talking with you all has made me sort of realize why that might be is 
you know, I've gotten to the point where I've figured out the pattern. <laughs> and like, if there's something new and hot that I need to know, I can learn the details. But I've sort of, you know, figured out like the basics of how software is put together. And now I'm thinking more about like, hmm, it's probably time for me to start figuring out what are the what are the sort of like the, the foundational technologies that I maybe have been dodging a little bit. And how can I fill in the holes there? I think that was really illuminating for me. Yeah, for me, um, well, this this talk we've been talking about, uh, that's uh, kind of the culmination of a lot of reflections, but also uh, in this talk with you, then, um, yeah, I've um, kind of reflected on, it's a hard argument to make. It's it's kind of tough because it's it's almost, or for me, it's, I for me the takeaway from this talk is that I I I can I could use more practice <laughs> into uh, introducing um, the the problem and arguing the problem and I'm thinking that I hope that uh, maybe other people can build on the um, uh, the the arguments or the the question I put forth in my talk and then create even better arguments. Or maybe try to create a counter argument, and then you can have counter counter arguments, and then we can arrive at some quite refined way of uh, looking at software. So um, it's uh, I'm reflecting here, and I'm thinking that uh, software development is still a incredibly young field. I think psychology is maybe 200 years, and they consider themselves a young field. So what what is uh, development even then? <laughs> We're still figuring this out. Towards the end here, I thought about longevity. Can I write something today that will last 10 years? Can I write something today that my clients will think, oh my goodness, this is something we should take care of and safeguard or cultivate for 10 or 15 years instead of trying to change it every three years? because then are you really getting anywhere? <laughs> yeah, you know, one other reflection that just sort of popped into the back of my head near the end of our conversation there is thinking about, like, say you're fully like bought into Kubernetes and you've built a whole system and you're like, okay, great. We've got choice. We can we can run this on Google or Amazon or Ad. We've got three choices of giant corporations that we can give lots of money to which all have basically the same ethics profile to run this. Like that, like those are your choices. Like, especially if you don't have the sysadmin experience to build out your own like virtualization platform where you, where you like, you know, it's so interesting. Like it feels like there's choice, but when you look at the, like the ethical profile of the companies involved, there, there really isn't. It's, um, like Google's slightly better because they're carbon neutral and Microsoft kind of does some cool stuff and Amazon's sort of her evil all, all to the bottom and like you know there's there's there isn't really a choice uh if you really think about it and, and that's also an interesting thing to sort of ponder from that perspective just on that note maybe you don't have sysadmin experience in your company anymore because some years ago you decided like yeah we don't need to hire anybody with sysadmin skills anymore then you're fully bought into uh, kubernetes uh, <laughs> yes uh, Nils, it's been great talking to you today. Thanks so much for being yeah. on the show. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, for having me. Businesses all over the world right now are trying to reinvent how they connect with the world. 
Whether a business is delivering packages, treating patients, or running a global customer support center, their customers need them to invent new ways to stay connected. Twilio is the platform that Fortune 500 companies and startups alike trust to build seamless communication experiences with phone calls, text messages, video calls, and more. Really, the only limit becomes your developer's imaginations. It's time to build. Visit Twilio.com to learn more.